Hear the word of the Lord. Then Esther told Hathach to go back and relay this message to Mordecai. All the king's officials and even the people in the provinces know that anyone who appears before the king in his inner court without being invited is doomed to die unless the king holds out his gold scepter. And the king has not called for me to come to him for 30 days. So Hethek gave Esther's message to Mordecai. Mordecai sent this reply to Esther. Don't think for a moment that because you're in the place you will escape, that you're in the palace you will escape when all other Jews are killed. If you keep quiet at a time like this, deliverance and relief for the Jews will arise from some other place, but you and your relatives will die. Who knows if perhaps you were made queen for just such a time as this. Then Esther sent this reply to Mordecai. Go and gather together all the Jews of Susa and fast for me. Do not eat or drink for three days only, night or day. My maids and I will do the same. And then, though it is against the law, I will go in to see the king. If I must die, I must die. So Mordecai went away and did everything as Esther had ordered him. This is the word of the Lord. God, You may be seated. Good morning, soldier, and peace be with you. It's good to see you. Uh, my name is Jonah. I'm one of the pastors here. If you're visiting with us, welcome. Uh, we have one more week to go in our series on the book of Esther, which may be exciting for some of you. Uh, last week, she didn't say it to me, but she said it to somebody else. A lady came up and just talked about how awful this Esther series has been and how she can't wait for it to be over. It was, in essence, I liked Esther so much more before you guys started preaching it. Um, <laughs> it wasn't like that. It wasn't that bad. Uh, I'm just saying, it's been, last week was a downer if you were here. Can we all agree on that? I know it was Father's Day, but it was kind of like, here's how to screw up your life, and here's all the consequences of it. Uh, if you're here today and you're like, man, it can't be that bad two weeks in a row, you're right, it can't be that bad two weeks in a row, but it can be almost that bad two weeks in a row. Uh, so we're just going to keep going down this uh, downward spiral, and uh, next week should be moderately encouraging. And to end the series, we've got Mike Cosper, who's going to be here. Uh, Mike is one of the founding pastors of Sojourn. He's a pastor at Sojourn East, and he started this uh, organization called Harbor Media, which exists to equip Christians to live in a post-Christian world. And if you've never heard that phrase before, a post-Christian world, that's where, you know, we live in a place where the assumed values, the things that just feel normal to us, or where you can look around and everyone more or less acts like traditional Orthodox Christianity, we're beyond that now. Uh, things like truth are no longer assumed to exist. And yet here we are, still called to be light and salt to a dark world. And so Mike does podcasts, conferences, books, to help Christians embody this message that we have. And he wrote a fantastic book about Esther called Faith Among the Faithless. It's for sale at the book table in the How We Grow Wall. A lot of the series was influenced by that. And so Mike's going to come next week after the 11 o'clock service, and he'll just give a, a few minutes, a talk on uh, how to embody a faithful presence as Christians in, in a world gone a bit mad. And then there'll be lots of time for Q&A. Um, it's free. There'll be lunch from Jersey Mike's. If you've never had Jersey Mike's, it's a sub-level up. Uh, There's no endorsement there. It's just good subs, and they opened up a location here in New Albany, so we want to support them. 
Uh, all we would ask is just fill out a Connect card saying you're coming and how many people are coming, or if you're very high tech, you can sign up on the app. We just don't, it's just math, people. We don't want to order 100 subs for 10 people. You know what I mean? We're gonna, if there's only 10 people, we'll order 10 subs, but whatever. So if you want to come, it's free. It should be interesting. Mike is stunningly brilliant. Uh, he's the kind of guy that, I think he's 38 or something, and you talk to him and you're like, you're way farther along than me. You know what I mean? They just talk and you'd be like, you know, it's the 17th century Romanian philosopher said, and you're like, no, I don't read 17th century Romanian. He's, so he's just wicked smart. He's a real gift to the church, and I hope you can make it out. Uh, so last week, the downer week, um, we considered the slippery slope of pride and what happens when self-absorption gives way to self-reliance and the destruction that that can bring about in our lives. And we looked at the character, um, this mysterious shift that happened in the character of Mordecai. Uh, we talked about how he went from hiding his identity Fake, not faking it, I guess, but hiding the fact that he was Jewish, trying to assimilate into the culture, uh, to all of a sudden becoming steady and standing, both literally and spiritually, metaphorically, refusing to bow. We don't know what happened. We, we don't know uh, why the shift happened, but we know what it looked like. He displayed this ongoing daily obedience, refusing to bow down before Haman. Uh, it, was, it was a small act of obedience in the sense that uh, for most of us, standing up doesn't take a tremendous amount of effort. You don't have to like warm up on the elliptical to be able to just stand. It doesn't take much energy. You don't have to be very strong to stand up. So you could say it's a small act of obedience, but it took significant risk. He was putting his life on the line, and uh, last week we said the road to life is paved with strife. The idea being once we start trying to obey, live righteously, trust in God's commands, that won't necessarily mean life gets easy all of a sudden. Um, it's one of the worst things Christians say, life will be easier for you if you start following Jesus. Or maybe you went to summer camp and they're like, man, everything's going to go great. And then you follow Jesus and come home and you face all kinds of temptation and opposition to what you've done. So in, in Mordecai's case, he does the righteous thing. He does the right thing, the human thing, and it throws the entire empire into confusion. Haman gets so mad at him, he decides he's not just going to take it out on Mordecai, he's going to kill all of the Jewish people in the entire Persian Empire. Threw the city of Susa and the whole empire into confusion. But it began to slowly tip these scales from oppression to freedom. And today we'll, we'll see how Mordecai's growing faith and boldness, um, his steadiness, produced that same reality in other people. It's, it's this great biblical principle we see displayed all over that health begets health. If you become more rooted in Christ and more transformed in Christ, that tends to have an effect on all of the people around you. And, and we see it specifically here with Mordecai and his cousin slash adopted daughter, Esther. And what I hope you see, so here's where the downer is. Uh, the road to life, yes, it's paved with strife and it requires great sacrifice. Great sacrifice. So, to put some context into this and what's happening with Esther, I, I want to talk for a minute about uh, the place of ministry. And what I mean by that is, where does ministry actually happen physically? Where is it? Uh, because there's something significant shifting in Esther here, and it speaks to, uh, I think, this kind of core issue that I hear all the, all the time by virtue of what I do for a living. Uh, I spend a lot of time with guys in their 20s who are thinking about planting a church with Sojourn Network, or they go to the seminary and 
Uh, they just want to know, like, how did you go from unemployed seminary student into becoming in, in full-time ministry? Because it's tough to get a job at a church. Uh, there are not a lot of churches that can afford to pay people enough that they can, like, do things like have children or, or own a home. You know, it's, it's just, um, thanks be to God, we have a church that's generous and, and we can do that. But people come, and here's the situation that they'll be in. Can't get a job. Uh, they went to Bible college, and now they're in seminary. And if you find yourself at like 25, and you went to a Christian high school, and then a Bible college, and now you're in like year two of seminary, you don't have what we would call marketable skills. You know what I mean by that? It means you know how to read the Bible, and that's kind of it. And so there aren't a ton of jobs open to you. So they, they go and get the kind of jobs that don't require a lot of experience that usually like young, strong 23-year-olds can do. And those tend to be difficult jobs. Some of these guys, it's the first time they've done something really hard in their life. And they'll come to me and they'll say things like, I just can't do this job anymore. I, I, just, I just wish I was in ministry. Right? So I've got this job over here that I have to do because I'm facing the realities of bills. But oh, I would so much prefer to be in ministry. The same kind of conversation happens with um, young moms and so if you're visiting with this church, you may notice that we are a fertile church, by and large. Our, our growth strategy is procreation. So we don't hand out tracts. We just, you know, do marriage retreats and stuff. Because you know what happens on marriage retreats. Uh, sorry. I was off the script. Sorry. You know, if you have babies. I'm sorry. Uh, but so you'll have a mom that, like in college, was leading 16 Bible studies, and she was discipling 15 women, and she was re like watching all of the Right Now media videos. She was just doing everything and feeling like she's changing the world. And then she has two, three little kids at home, and she, she went from like reading the Bible to now changing diapers. Or it just feels like so much energy is, is focused on the home, and they'll lament about how unimportant their life feels, because they used to be doing ministry, but now we're here raising children. Um, we'll, we'll find businessmen that come, and maybe they'll want to make a donation, or you know, they've made a bunch of money, and they, and they want to give back. And they'll say things like, you know, I just know that my job isn't as important as what you guys are doing here in the church, and I just, I just want to give back. Wish I could be doing something as meaningful as what you guys are doing. It's the same core issue that is happening over and over in all of these different fields. It's a phenomenon. I think it might be unique to Protestant churches where, uh, I'll put it to you this way, we have the sense that the most important thing you can do with your time is to preach the Word of God. To, be, to give a Bible lesson out of the scriptures. And everything else is on this kind of sliding scale of less than. So if you want a meaningful, important life, be a preacher. And if you can't do that, be an associate pastor. And if you can't be that, then be a student pastor. If you can't be that, then be a worship pastor. And if you can't do that, geez, I guess get a real job and, and just give all your money away. You, you know what I mean? It's, so we, we, we treat this idea of ministry happens in the context of being on staff at a local church and, if possible, teaching the Bible. And then the further we get from that, we wrestle with this just doesn't feel significant or important. Um, and Esther will force us to face some difficult, uncomfortable is probably a better way to put it, realities uh, about where ministry happens and, and what it is. Simple definition. This isn't exhaustive but I think it's simple and, and, and helpful. Ministry is joining God in his work of making all things new. 
This is the great promise Jesus gives to us at the end of Revelation. He says, behold, I'm making all things new. And so to be in ministry is to join him in that work. And, and he's remaking an entire world. He's making the future kingdom a present reality now, uh, which as far as I can tell is not just a grand worship service. There's, there's more happening. So think about Esther for a minute here. In terms of her character, her moral fiber, uh, she has broken almost all of the laws of Moses. So the Ten Commandments, she's, she's broken more than half of them. Um, she's fornicated. She's hid her identity and religion. She's compromised. But she finds herself in the palace without, with at least some access to the king. She's, as we would put in the Baptist world, she's not a member in good standing of any local congregation, right? She's, she's not a member of any church. She's not a member of any religious body. As far as we can tell, she's not practicing any kind of spirituality, let alone a religion. So who does God use? Yes, he uses preachers. Uh, there's biblical examples of this. Uh, there's uh, a guy named Ezra that you can go read about. If you're like, who's Ezra? What did he do? It's in your Bible. Let Go read the Bible. It's in the Old Testament. It's in every Bible. You can go read about Ezra. But in essence, the people of God needed to remember and be called back to the Word of God. They needed instruction on how to live based on the Scripture. So what does God do? He sends a Bible teacher. But then you get situations like Nehemiah, where the people of God needed a real city, a real place to live. So who does God send? He doesn't send the Bible teacher. He sends a construction worker. Or if you want to be a little bit fancier, maybe today we would call Nehemiah an urban planner. (laughs) Walls needed to be built, so who does God send? He sends someone who knows how to build walls. There's systemic oppression, genocide, gross injustice. So, though she be compromised and in a terrible position, God sends a tender-hearted woman with no church affiliation. If you go through the pages of the scriptures and think that, well, ministry is when you go to Bible college and then you go get a theology degree and then you go get X job at such a church, like... The Bible will mess with that thinking for you because I don't like this language, clergy and lay people. I don't really see that kind of idea in the scriptures. Um, But just because I think people understand what what I mean by that, God will use the church staff and the non-church staff. He uses the clergy and the laity. He'll use men and women, which seems to make a lot of people around here uncomfortable. But over and over and over, you'll see God use strong, powerful women to move his mission forward. He uses teachers. Yes, it's important to have the gift of teaching or to be a preacher. But he also uses city planners and construction workers. He uses social workers and he uses politicians. Esther is this beautiful picture of what ministry is, or where it happens, rather. It's the place that God has placed you. So if you're like, man, what's my ministry? I would say, where do you live? Where do you, what do you do with 40 hours of your week? Well, that's a good chance that that's your ministry. And if you think the tasks before you are too unimportant, because it, in your mind it's not as significant as preaching the Bible or something, I would invite you to come once again to the Scriptures. If you think that the compromises you've made are too significant, 
I would invite you to come again to the pages of the Bible. If you think your skills are too inadequate and your character too tainted, you, you do not know the God of the Bible. The, the destiny of humanity is not a church service led by celebrity preachers. It's a city, it's a place with all kinds of people and activities. It's a whole new world that God is recreating and inviting us to live into with real bodies, with real streets, with real buildings. So practically, if you're, like if you're new to our church or you're wondering, like, what are these people doing? This all sounds weird. Uh, our best program as the church, and this has been the case for roughly 2,000 years, our best program is our people living as Christians wherever God has placed them. So if you're an electrician and you come and say, I want to start an electrician ministry where I, we create a program that would sound appealing to electricians to get them to come to our church, we would say, we're not going to do an electrician ministry. We have a you being a Christian ministry, which means you as an electrician, go be a Christian around all of your electricians. See what I'm saying? Like, our best strategy for reaching people is for you to live like a Christian wherever God, wherever God has placed you. How are we going to reach the graphic design community? Well, we're going to send graphic designers who are Christians out there. How are we going to reach IUS? Well, we're going to send IUS students to IUS to be Christians. Like, pick, pick your ministry. You, so you could have a garbage man ministry. One of our most faithful members is, uh, what are they, what, a sanitation engineer. Right? which means he's huffing rain or shine on the, on the back of a garbage truck. Like, w- our best program is our Christians being Christians wherever God has placed them. The ministry problem most of us have is not a place or a vocation as much as it is a posture. The place of ministry is wherever God has placed you. So the posture of ministry then, what, where does our soul need to be? This is a little bit more clear now in, in the story. So... In chapter 4, Esther is worried about Mordecai. Why is she worried? Because he's put on a, a, sack, a potato sack, and he's standing outside the gates hollering at people. He looks terrible. People are worried that he's crazy. Esther tries to send him supplies, like clean clothes. He refuses, and then she sends a messenger to say, in essence, what's your deal, Mordecai? What are you doing? She learns of the genocide that Xerxes and Haman have plotted, and in response... This is what Mordecai asks of Esther. Verse 8. He also asked Hathak to direct her to go to the king to beg for mercy and plead for her people. Esther responds to this by reminding him, you don't just walk up to the king. If you go to him without being summoned, he'll likely kill you. This is her response in verse 11. She says, anyone who just shows up to the king without being summoned, she says, is doomed to die unless the king holds out his gold scepter. And do y'all remember what happened the last time a, a bold queen approached Xerxes with something other than what he wanted? Remember what his first, when he asked his first wife, hey, go dance around for my buddies. And she made the horrible mistake of saying no. And he exiled her and then, you know, put this brutal experience on all of these young women throughout Persia in pursuit of a new wife. You you can't depend on a guy like Xerxes for mercy. You want me to go talk to him? And then I guess there was some ritual where you touch him on the head with his gold scepter, which means you don't get to die today. So she's very uncomfortable about this. And Mordecai responds to her, and it's just amazing what's shifted 
in Mordecai. Look at what he says here, verse 13 and 14. Um, He says, don't think for a moment that because you're in the palace, you will escape when all other Jews are killed. If you keep quiet at a time like this, deliverance and relief for the Jews will arise from some other place, but you and your relatives will die. Who knows if perhaps you were made queen for just such a time as this. He says, you're you're banking on mercy either way, Esther. And what he's asking for is a posture shift in her. So the, the first shift is to move from a posture of taking to giving. So if, if you want to know how to make wherever you are an act of ministry, you have to see yourself as there to give to it, to, to bless it, and not just to take from it. So this is a little bit speculative. It's a narrative, and so there's room to explore in it a little bit. Uh, by all accounts, Esther seemed pretty content with her life. We don't get any indication that she was upset. Uh, she hasn't been summoned by Xerxes in 30 days. Her, at best, she was a trophy wife which meant her role was to look good, smell good, so that when Xerxes wanted her, she was available and would be a way that, she, that he wanted her to be. So this meant, as the queen, these 30 days, she's basically taking baths all day, being, getting pedicures all day, which, like, it's messed up, okay? She's a sex slave, so I'm not trying to say that this was her dream life, but we get no indication that she was not content with what her daily life looked like. She was in the palace. She had servants making sure she stayed pretty and available. Mordecai is inviting Esther to stop taking from the palace and start giving to it. It's moving from consumer to contributor. It's a posture that says, God has put me in this place for something more than just me. And how different is this than the way we Americans view basically everything? So I think I offended some people in the last service, so you all have something to talk about. I'm going to say the same thing that I said last service that wasn't in my notes. And I'll preface it by saying I am a free market capitalist. I believe in capitalism in the sense that I wouldn't vote for anything else, okay? Um, But in heaven, we will not be in a free market capitalistic society. Uh, King Jesus will come. He will rule with equity and fairness. This is the best we can do. It's a messed up, broken system that does better than restraint, to restrain evil than anything else we've tried so far. Um, so the death toll of capitalism is in the millions rather than the hundreds of millions, which the other ones have created. You know, so it's like, it's messed up. And my point in saying that is our whole, consume, our whole capitalistic system is built on convincing you that who you are and what you have is not enough to keep you buying stuff. That's what gets jobs. That's what keeps people moving. That's what keeps the engines churning. So everything that is, no, (laughs) you know how great your iPhone is? You know, your iPhone is amazing. And then the ads come out and then Tim Cook gets up on the stage and he does something and you're like, this thing is a piece of junk. (laughs) My phone phone now only has 12 billion pixels in it, but the new one has 13.5 billion pixels. And notice every time they release a product, it's like, we've revolutionized the watch again. And it's like, I don't know, man, it's kind of essentially the same thing. Uh, It just does it faster. The whole system is built on convincing you, you need the next thing to keep us buying something. And that has shaped who we are as people. So we come to everything as though it were Walmart. And if the product we want isn't available at the price we want, then we go and complain to the manager. 
So you come, you come to church and we treat... Do you think 100 years ago they had the phrase church shopping? I'm going to go to a place that has the music I like, that says the things that I like, that preaches the Bible translation I like, that keeps the temperature of the auditorium the way I like, that does on and on. And every Sunday we get a connect card that says it was too cold in the auditorium. And then someone else would come and be like, man, why is it so hot in the auditorium? The music was so loud. Why can't it be dark and loud like it was when we were at the 930? And if you have no idea what that means, that joke wasn't for you, right? Because <laughs> there are people here longing for the glory days when Sojourn used to be loud and angrier than we are now. Um, we come to church so long as it is exactly as we want it to be. And if it isn't, if something rubs you funny, you shop for another church because it's a product that you have come to consume. I'll do this job so long as it's everything I dreamt of. I'll do what my boss says so long as I respect him. It's not really how the authority structure works at a job, right? And if you'll only work for people that you like or agree with, you'll be self-employed eventually, right? Like, we are people who excel at taking. We walk around with our mouths open and say to the world, feed me, feed me. Our fundamental posture is one of consumption. But that is not the posture of ministry. There's a shift happening here in Esther where she's willing to start saying, I will look at the palace as something more than just what it can give to me or provide for me. Becoming steady, stable in the midst of adversity requires us to take a posture of giving to the place that God has placed us. It's where we look where we are and say, we've been brought to this place to be a blessing to this place. This is why we spend so much money and energy outside of our church walls. And it's not like a Christian bait and switch. Like if we do enough stuff, they'll say a prayer and come to Jesus. We hope for that, but we also recognize not everyone who lives around here or who attends our church will believe like us or will think like us, but we're working hard so that if our church disappeared, the city of New Albany would feel it. They would notice that we're gone. Why? Because we're the kingdom of God. And how, how could the light of the world and the salt of the earth take root in a place and not make it more beautiful? Not make it a better place to live for everyone, regardless of what you believe about Jesus. So we spend a lot of time and energy making this place more like the kingdom of God, which will benefit all people. We want to be a ministry uh, that sees this place as being the place where God has called us to work. So the posture of ministry gives to wherever we are, seeking to be a blessing to it. Now, that may be a little bit easier to wrap our mind around. Um, I think there's something more difficult, though, that's happening with Esther. And it's not only that ministry gives, but it risks. Mordecai leaves Esther with two options. Keep quiet and let the Jewish people die. Now, this would allow Esther to keep the palace. It would allow her to keep her position, at least theoretically. And all of a sudden, Mordecai has this incredible faith. He's not desperate. He's not like, you're our only hope, Esther. He's like, listen, God's going to save us either way. But maybe it could be you that does it. It's like, what happened to this guy? What shifted in him where a chapter earlier he's hiding and scared, and now he's like, nothing will stop the salvation of the Lord. He will deliver his people. 
but you could be the one God uses. Option one, keep quiet. Option two, approach the king and ask for mercy. There's the obvious risk here. And what's so interesting is Mordecai points out to her, listen, there's risk either way. You're banking on Xerxes' mercy either way. One of the lies of consumerism is that you're the one in control of that consumption. But if you, if you consume long enough, you will find a simple way to think about it is you do that long enough, your possessions will begin to possess you. Spend all this energy wrapped up in your dream house, and so you overspend, you spend more than you should, can't quite afford it, but it's your dream house, and it's got the farmhouse sink, and it's got whatever, and you buy that, and you can't spend a minute enjoying it because you're so anxious about how expensive it is. Your whole life gets steered around affording this thing that you so desperately wanted. It, you give yourself to your job thinking that, you know, you'll cut corners and, and compromise, and that place will eat you alive. You'll learn the lesson that so many of our retired folks learned is that once you stop producing, once you stop making the consumption possible, they will move on to someone who's younger and, frankly, less intelligent than you are, who's willing to give a 30-year run to something that will leave them wanting. To join God in his work of making all things new, we must be a people who risk the palace. We must be a people who look at our positions our influence, our our places of privilege and prestige and be willing to risk losing it. Because if you don't, it'll own you. And and you'll you'll never push against the envelope. You'll never be steady or strong enough to be who God requires you to be unless you're willing to lose those things and those places. The posture of ministry is one that's willing to give to a place rather than take from it. And we must be willing to risk our palace, the place of prestige or significance for the sake of God's kingdom. So Mordecai keeps pressing Esther, and this shift happens. Here's the response after going back and forth. I'm going to skip that for time. She says, do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. My maids and I will do the same. And then, though it's against the law, I will go in to see the king. If I must die, I must die. The price of ministry may ultimately be your life. Maybe not for us in the United States right now. We've got missionaries living overseas in this church. The husband's been mugged. It's illegal to be Christians there. We more or less had to sneak them into the country. It may be your physical life that the risk costs you. It'll certainly mean your daily emotional life. Um, To give and to risk for the sake of God's kingdom requires death to your way of life. And a simple way of understanding, or of, I don't know, maybe convincing yourself of the need for that is, do you know yourself well enough to see how trusting yourself has worked for you? How's your way of doing you working for you? Is it going all right? To give and to risk for the sake of God's kingdom requires a certain degree of sobriety that says, I'm not sure of the best way to be me because I did something that I wanted to do that I thought would be really good and it blew up my life. To give and risk for the sake of God's kingdom 
requires us to let go of our plans and our priorities for a story that's far bigger and far greater. And until you can see your story wrapped up in the story of God and his kingdom come, only then will you find safety in letting go of your own story. If you step back for a second, does any of the story sound familiar? Does anything about what Esther is facing right now sound familiar? Being in a place of power, of influence, willing to risk that, put her own life on the line for the sake of countless millions of lives of other people. Do you know anyone else who was willing to put a palace at risk, a palace far greater than the palace of Xerxes, one who was willing to humble himself, lay down his rights, risk, sacrifice for the sake of others? Philippians 2, though he was God, he did not think of equality with God as something to cling to. Instead, he gave up his divine privileges. He took the humble position of a servant and was born as a human being. When he appeared in human form, he humbled himself in obedience to God and died a criminal's death on a cross. Jesus, high and lifted up, looked down at his creation, torn in confusion and sin. He emptied himself of his divine privileges. He risked the palace, and not just Xerxes' palace, the throne room of heaven itself. He moved that aside to come in a garden, aware of what's to come. Like Esther, he says to his father, if I must die, I must die. The risk was great. To give brought incredible pain and even death. But Jesus is the greater Esther. Jesus didn't just prevent his people's genocide. He secured their eternal souls and ensured that God's kingdom will come. His will will be done on earth as it is in heaven. God's deliverance will come for his people. His kingdom will be built. Maybe it'll come through you. Maybe he's made you a plumber for such a time as this. Maybe he's made you a car mechanic. Maybe he's made you a marketing rep. Maybe he's made you an accountant for such a time as this. Some of the Christian life makes a lot of sense. Some of it doesn't make hardly any sense, at least not on paper. This is one of those things. Um, The clear pattern of ministry is this, suffering before glory. In the Bible, it almost always gets worse before it gets better. Suffering comes before glory. To put it in terms centered more around Jesus, the crucifixion comes before the resurrection. This is the pattern of the scriptures and talk to people who've given their life to ministry and this is what you will hear from them. In the words of Jesus, a seed has to go in the ground and what? Die. A seed must go in the ground and die before it can become something far more beautiful. And this can be scary, right? There's certain risk involved, and certainly it can be painful. But could you imagine if this was our posture? The book of Hebrews says that Jesus, for the what set before him, the joy set before him, endured the cross, scorning its shame. You think Jesus would prefer his pre-resurrection body or his post-resurrection body? You think we will enjoy this present age with this 
darkness and brokenness more or less than the future city of gold, eternal kingdom of God. For the joy set before us, we follow the cruciform pattern of Christ, suffering before glory. What would happen if we gathered as the church to give to one another? You're like, I had a guy one time, he didn't ask me, he asked Bobby. He asked for a list of the preachers, the preaching schedule, so he could only come when the preacher he liked to preach was preaching. How many of us come being like, man, I hope they sing my song this morning. I hope the AC is working. I hope the coffee's fixed. I hope it goes just the way. What would happen if we showed up and said, man, somebody here had one of the worst weeks of their life. I'm going to find somebody and remind them that God loves them. I'm coming to church on Sunday to bless somebody and to give to them. What would happen if we were a church like that? What would happen if we were people who risked our positions and preferences to bless one another? If we looked at our homes, our jobs, our very lives as tools in the hands of a renovating God? Can you imagine the contentment we would find in whatever God has given us to do? This is not just your job. It's the part you have to play of making all things new again. The deep sense of meaning we would have knowing that we are building God's kingdom, even in places and ways that may not make sense to you on paper, the steadiness that we would find in life's troubles and losses, knowing that every death in Christ, be it physical, emotional, relational, every death in Christ produces resurrection. The joy set before us. Yes, the road to life requires great sacrifice, but it's the road to life. This is the way of making all things new again in the way that God has given us to remember this, to anchor our souls and compel us forward is rooted in the mystery of this pattern. We remember the night Jesus was betrayed, he took a loaf of bread. And it's just so fascinating to me. He doesn't say, remember all the things I taught you, right? He doesn't say, uh, this is my teachings meant to make you smarter or this is my church meant to make you feel less lonely or, you know, like all of these things that are wrapped up in the church. But the core matter of the Christian faith, Jesus says, this is my body and it is broken for you. Remember my sacrifice for you. After the meal, he took a cup of wine and he said, this is my blood shed for you, which seals your relationship with God. It's the self-sacrifice of Jesus that secures you with God. Listen, To put it in the context of Esther, to think that your performance, how you did this week or how you'll do next week, how you did 20 years ago, dictates whether or not you are safe in the family of God, it's like somebody on the other side of the Persian Empire feeling like whether or not they yelled at their neighbor that day dictates whether or not Xerxes is going to kill them. It doesn't matter what they did. It was what Esther did. It was what Esther did that secures freedom and salvation for her people. She was the one who interceded to the king, as we'll look at next week. Jesus, our great high priest, intercedes for us. We plead his blood, his work, his performance. And so we remember his great sacrifice and his blood shed because that is what makes us safe with God and empowers us to endure the long days, the long roads of sacrifice and laying down our preferences for the joy set before us. Every crucifixion leads to resurrection. And so our tradition at Sojourn is to come forward, rip off a piece of bread. You can dip it in wine or juice. 
Uh, wine will have a piece of twine wrapped around it. We'll have stations up front and in the back, and there'll be gluten-free elements to my left. I'll pray for us, and then Christians, let's come remember our hope together. Uh, let's pray.